The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look at the top stories in the coming week from our Daybreak anchors all around the world. And straight ahead on the program, Fed Chair Jay Powell heads to Capitol Hill. I'm Tom Busby in New York. I'm Kaylee Lines in Washington, where Federal Reserve nominees will be appearing in a Senate hearing next week. I'm Caroline Hepke here in London, where we're looking at the Bank of England's unenviable position at the June rate-setting meeting. I'm Doug Krisner. Prime Minister Narendra Modi comes to the U.S. We look at the complicated relationship between the U.S. and India. That's all straight ahead on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend on Bloomberg 1130 New York, Bloomberg 991 Washington, D.C., Bloomberg 1061 Boston, Bloomberg 960 San Francisco, DAB Digital Radio London, Sirius XM 119, and around the world on BloombergRadio.com and via the Bloomberg Business app. Good day to you. I'm Tom Busby. We begin today's program with the Federal Reserve, which paused its string of interest rate hikes this past week after 10 rate increases in as many meetings. But policymakers signaled two more rate hikes may be coming this year and that rate cuts are still a long way off. And this week, Fed Chair Jerome Powell heads to Capitol Hill for a semi-annual testimony to Congress on the central bank's monetary policy report. For more about what's behind the Fed's latest action and what to expect this week, we turn to Bloomberg's global economics and policy editor, Michael McKee. Michael, thanks for being here. Happy to be here. Well, Fed policymakers would not have left rates unchanged without good reasons. Encouraging economic data about jobs or retail spending, inflation, housing, energy prices. So what will we be watching for Chairman Powell to say this week? I think people will want to know how serious the Fed is about doing two more rate increases. It seems that at least one is locked in, and that's what the markets are pricing. Uh, the dot plot suggested they would do two. What would it take for the Fed to decide it needed to raise another 50 basis points? Uh, is it uh, inflation going the wrong way? Is it inflation not moving? Is it some sign that the economy is collapsing? Uh, what are they looking for? But we have seen good data. We have seen I mean, jobs a little uneven there, but the inflation, some of the key inflation statistics that they look at, those metrics have been pretty good. Uh, housing prices have gone down. Energy prices have stabilized, even declined a little bit. Um, retail spending, we got a real surprise for May. Well, it looks like the economy is doing what the Fed wants. It is slowing down gradually, and that's the the scenario, the soft landing scenario that they want to have. Uh, the question is, does it speed up its drop? Uh, will we start to see things fall off a cliff? So far, we haven't. As you noted, the jobs numbers were still strong. Uh, even though unemployment rose, uh, it's still at 3.7 percent. And uh, we saw retail sales it rise, which was something of a surprise, but uh, in each category, I think only gasoline fell. But in each category, the the increases were smaller than they had been in previous months. So it does suggest that people are still spending; they're just not spending as much, and that's 
what the whole point of the Fed's tightening campaign is about. Now, this past week, Chairman Powell told reporters we shouldn't call this pause that he just made a skip. And he says the Fed needs more time to make sure that they made the right move. So let's listen into what he told reporters. We don't know the full extent of, of the consequences of the banking turmoil that we've seen. We, we, it would be early to see those, but we don't know what the extent is. We'll have some more time to see that unfold. I mean, it's, a, it's just the idea that we're trying to get this right. And uh, th- this is, uh, if you think of the two things as separate variables, then I think, I think that the, the skip, I, I shouldn't call it a skip, the, the decision makes sense. All right, so not a skip. Okay, Michael, does that give us any sense of what the Fed might do at its next meeting in July or the three remaining meetings this year? Well, the skip language that he accidentally used, uh, and then he kept saying um, that the July meeting is live, were sort of being read as signals by the markets that the Fed is planning to raise rates again at the July 26th meeting. The uh, That brings, be- brings us back to what we were talking about earlier about what does the market want to hear in terms of... Uh, the Fed and uh, what it would take to get them to stop uh, or uh, to to move forward or do 50 basis points instead of 25 in July. Uh, the question then becomes uh, what happens after that? Uh, when they get to September, do they have a rate increase in train? Um, I guess we have to wait and and, uh, and see what the data show us. And <laughs> to go back to your very first question, I'm sure that is a line that you'll hear from Jay Powell. Yeah, data dependent, data dependent. But and even until July, we get some pretty important data points. So what will we get before well, that? Well, we get another payrolls report uh, the week um at the Friday after July 4th. And then we get another CPI report and another uh, PCE inflation report. The interesting thing is between the March and May uh, meetings, uh, we had uh, uh, between the I'm sorry, m- between the March and, and June uh, meetings, there were two or three CPI reports, two jobs reports. Now, before July, there's, there's going to be one uh, of each. So they will have a less robust data set to judge how much the economy has changed one way or the other. And during the summer, I mean, anything could happen with summer jobs, lifting payrolls higher, but kids coming out of school, it, we really could Well, it's anything. interesting because, of course, the, the, the Bureau of Labor Statistics seasonally adjusts uh, to sort of take the lumpiness out of things like summer jobs for kids or teachers uh, coming off the payroll because it's summertime. But since the pandemic, their seasonal adjustment efforts have been troubled. It's It's been difficult to do. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see what kind of numbers we get uh, when we start to see uh, the June, when we see the June payrolls number in July, because that's a month where uh, the swimming pools open up uh, the June in June, and uh, you know the the ice cream shops uh, take on extra workers and stuff like that. We'll see how how that all plays out. Oh, you make it sound so nice. I got to tell you. <laughs> all right. Well, you know, let, let's let's go back to the the what's coming up this week, Wednesday and Thursday. Um, Chairman Powell's testimony to Congress. Now, some say that uh, a lot of these people on the committees have less of a monetary agenda, more of a political agenda with the with the, uh, Chairman Powell and with the Fed. But Chairman Powell has been, you know, there with a Republican president, now with a Democratic president. He's, he has seen it all. Um, let's talk about what he can expect to hear from people like 
Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren on the Senate Banking Committee. She's been very critical of the Fed, very critical of the banking system, very critical of corporations, and very critical of, of you know, the, the record-setting profits that we've made. What can we expect to hear from her and others like her? Well, you know that Elizabeth Warren, and this is just based on past performance, is going to lecture Jay Powell on uh, the evils of uh, tightening too much because then people lose their jobs, unemployment goes up, to which his answer can be, we're very sensitive to that and 3.7% unemployment. Yeah, so by the way. <laughs> we're, we're not doing that to you yet. Uh, but you could expect that from her. Others will be talking, trying to talk about uh, the debt, uh, the, the U.S. national debt and uh, the deficits and how much money we're spending. Uh, you can expect that from the Republicans. They usually try to get him to say that we need to have budget discipline, and he will try to stay out of those arguments. Yeah, not my much, job, not my as, job. As much as possible, yes. Yeah. Well, let's get back to more of those failed banks, because that's going to come up with him. Uh, it was just starting the last time he spoke. He did this you know, monetary policy in March, but uh, then it became a crisis. But things have settled down. So how, how will that play in, do you think? To the testimony this week. Well, he will repeat what he said at the press conference uh, this past week that the Fed anticipates there will be some credit impacts from the bank situation. And there's certainly a lot of people out there who think that we're going to see more banks fail or we're going to see more problems. The data don't support that at the moment. Um, this is a little wonky, but everybody's been watching this new funding uh, lending program that the Fed set up for banks. Banks. And it's still rising. And so people are thinking, well, the banks are still troubled. But there's another measure that uh, accounts for all of the banks' borrowings, not just from that. And it seems that the banks borrowed a lot from the federal home loan banks. They're paying those off and going to the Fed facility. So uh, when you look at the overall borrowing by banks, it has come down some. And it does appear that things have, as you said, uh, settled down quite a bit. Got it. So uh, July, again, the the money right now on Wall Street is we're looking at perhaps a 25 basis point increase. Yes. Uh, 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 whispers of a 50 basis point? Well, it's just math. They said they would do two more, which since they do 25 at a time, uh, is, is a total of 50. So you could do 50 at once if you figure you need to get to that level. You might as well do it right away. But then that begs the question of why they didn't do it last week. Uh, so uh, we'll see. It's more likely given the... Uh, the way Powell has framed this as an exercise in caution to see the uh, lagged impacts of the moves they've already made and what impact they're going to have on the economy going forward, that they don't want to go too high too fast. And if they just do 25, that uh, is a cautious kind of move. All right. Bloomberg's global economic and policy editor, Michael McKee, thanks for joining us again. Coming up on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, the Bank of England and all the political economic pressure there right now. I'm Tom Busby, and this is Bloomberg. Bloomberg. 
Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look ahead at the top stories for investors in the coming week. I'm Tom Busby in New York. Up later in the program, India's prime minister heads to the White House. But first, the Bank of England out with a rate decision in the coming week. And it hits us at a time of continued economic and political pressure in the UK. For more, let's head to London and bring in Bloomberg Daybreak Europe anchor, Caroline Hepker. Tom, the UK has an inflation problem. Price rises were at a four-decade high last year. And although the figures have come down from 11.1% to 8.7% now, it has remained stronger than the Bank of England and, of course, most economists had expected. For more on this, I'm joined by Bloomberg's UK correspondent, Lizzie Burden. Lizzie, the Bank of England has a very difficult job on its hands. Yeah, we saw in that hot jobs data, the economy is resilient and we also saw that in the GDP data. But the flip side is it's going to spur inflation. So Bloomberg Economics, as a result, changed its call. It did just see a rate hike in June. Now it sees one in August as well. Markets have ramped up their bets for where the Bank of England's peak rate will be. Increasingly, it looks like 6%. And it's nearing the levels that they saw in the aftermath of the Liz Truss's mini budget. So for the June meeting on Thursday, it's not really a question of whether they'll hike or not. Now it's becoming a question of will it be by a quarter point or by a half point and crucial to that will be the latest inflation data. Yeah absolutely well you mentioned the growth and the labour data that we've had out in the last few days so the UK's finally joined other G7 economies in regaining the GDP that it lost during the pandemic took a long time output rose by two tenths of one percent in March so now we are back up with three tenths of one percent larger uh, in terms of the uh, GDP than we were pre-pandemic levels in terms of the reaction to that here's Bloomberg senior UK economist Dan Hansen discussing. I mean, I think it came in broadly as expected. It was a little bit weaker than we thought it would be, but I think it's broadly in line. I mean, the the big picture from the GDP data is that it's just holding up much better than anyone had expected, even sort of six months ago. And there are sort of lots of reasons for that. One is the labour market. There's energy price, lower energy prices that's helping. The global economy generally is probably doing a little bit better than people have expected. So that was Dan Hansen, Bloomberg's senior UK economist, so reacting to the latest data. I mean, yes, it, it does put the UK in a difficult position. It does for the Bank of England. As I say, it's going to spur inflation probably, which means more hikes further down the line. Those hikes might mean that Britain enters a recession. I know you were speaking to Karen Ward of JP Morgan Asset Management, who's also, as a side hustle, an economic advisor to the Chancellor, Jeremy Hunt. She thinks that a recession uh, may be likely, and that was even before we saw this jobs data. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Also, I have to say, 0.2% growth, 
it's pretty anemic, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. It's not uh, not that much to shout about, I suppose. And yet, of course, the government will want to show that it's positive. Uh, and when it comes to that, Rishi Sunak has pledged to halve inflation, one of his big five pledges, which are largely economic in focus, of course, uh, given uh, the turnover that we've had in prime ministers in, in the UK. Uh, this was, you know, this is his big kind of flagship bid for voters. And then Mervyn King in recent days has come out and said uh, very publicly in the national media that actually he thinks that that sort of pledge is a bad idea. Yes, this is in an interview with LBC's Andrew Marr. I have to say, policymakers and actually even Tory politicians behind the scenes when I speak to them have said that this is a bad idea. Look, Rishi Sunak, the thinking is, I hear, felt like lots of people blamed Liz Truss for higher inflation. So when he came in, he felt like he needed to grip the issue. And even though it's really the Bank of England's job to reduce inflation, uh, he he's taking responsibility for it. Mm. But there's a difference between actively reducing inflation and not doing anything to add to it, right? So he's in a risky position when inflation is proving stickier and stickier as the months go on. And I thought it was very interesting listening to him at Prime Minister's Questions on Wednesday. He didn't really talk about halving inflation by the end of the year so much as reducing it. So is he shifting the goalposts? Yeah, absolutely. And the former Bank of England Governor Andrew um, uh, Mervyn King talking about how it's not bad to claim credit for it once it's actually happened, uh, you know, but but not uh, not before, perhaps. Um, and so, too, the relationship between government and business, which is the other big struggle, I think, for Rishi Sunak and for the for the cabinet. In our reporting around whether the UK is adrift or not, uh, we've had a number of interviews with disgruntled, even despairing business leaders uh, about this issue, including with Archie Norman, who's the chairman of Marks & Spencer. He spoke to me at length about why the UK needs a broader industrial strategy, a real plan uh, for the economy, a skills agenda so that the UK, although it's under a great deal of pressure, can actually compete globally. Have a listen to what he said. An industrial strategy has to be profound and it's not just about our attitudes where we want to compete. It's about what skills do we want to have. Government plays a very big part in creating skills We have something called the apprenticeship levy, which is a tax on skills and a tax on training. A large part of that tax is taken by the Treasury and not respent. Other countries are saying, no, we need laboratory assistance. No, we need more coders. No, we need more data scientists. We seem to be agnostic. We don't know what we need. And that's not good enough. When France and Singapore and Canada and the US have a point of view, we have to have a point of view too. So you've got to start planning ahead. The footprint of government is too big in the economy to say we're just hands off, that we let the market decide, because government does create and shape the future direction. A competitive economy is one where the public and private sector work together. That doesn't mean in an old-fashioned sense of taxpayers' money going into owning companies or anything like that. It means we're working together on regulation, on trade, on investment in skills, on you know, how government supports entrepreneurs, how we shape the tax system. At the moment, that's come slightly adrift post-Brexit. So there used to be a good hand-in-hand working relationship. That was all swept away in the, in the sort of Boris Johnson era. 
and now we need to rebuild it again. So that was Archie Norman there saying we need an industrial strategy in the UK. So then let's wrap it all together as we think about the coming few days and, you know, what Andrew Bailey is going to do about UK rates. It's a really difficult position to be in for the governor looking at the data that has just come. And as I say, we'll get more on inflation uh, just before this BOE decision. But then thinking about the forecasts and what lies ahead when you've got members of the Monetary Policy Committee like Swati Dingra warning about this lag in monetary transmission 18 months to two years it seems to take for rates to pass through to the economy because of so many people having fixed rate mortgages it's a divided committee it looks like it's going to be between 25 basis points and 50 basis points but we'll be watching out for clues for what happens the rest of the year will there be a pause in August when will the cuts come it looks like the Bank of England may have been first to the rate hiking party but it's going to be the last to leave and take longer than the ECB and the Fed to get to the pivot. Okay, Lizzie, thank you so much for being with me. You'll be with me throughout the coming days, of course, to cover all things uh, UK economy. Bloomberg's UK correspondent, Lizzie Burden. I'm Caroline Hepke here in London, and you can catch us every weekday morning for Bloomberg Daybreak Europe, beginning at 6am in London. That's 1am on Wall Street. Tom. Thank you, Caroline. That was Bloomberg Daybreak Europe host, Caroline Hepker. And coming up on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, India's Prime Minister comes to the U.S. to meet with President Biden. I'm Tom Busby, and this is Bloomberg. Broadcasting live from the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York. Bloomberg 1130 to Washington, D.C. Bloomberg 991 to Boston. Bloomberg 1061 to San Francisco. Bloomberg 960 to the country. Sirius XM Channel 119 to London. DAB Digital Radio and around the globe. The Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend. I'm Tom Busby in New York with your global look ahead at the top stories for investors in the coming week. President Biden will host India's Prime Minister Narendra Modi in a state dinner in the coming week. And for more, let's go to Hong Kong and Bloomberg Daybreak Asia host Doug Krisner. Tom, the Biden administration recently characterized the relationship with India as the most important for the U.S. in the world. India is viewed as a vital partner in the U.S. effort to push back against China's expanding influence in the world. We want to take a closer look now with Bloomberg's Rebecca Chung-Wilkins. She is our Asia government and politics correspondent. Rebecca, it's always a pleasure. I think we have to begin with the fact that this relationship with the U.S. is somewhat complicated, and you have to look no further than India's failure to criticize Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Can Prime Minister Modi be counted on as a reliable partner for the U.S., or will India kind of go its own way without a strong alignment. What do you think? Well, listen, I don't want to go too far back, but India, the very basis of its foreign policy has goes back to sort of the, the Cold War when it essentially decided to set up this non-aligned country framework. So it's important to sort of understand that India, from the outset, since its independence, has approached foreign relations with this idea of always being somewhat a neutral figure, somewhat a middleman. And of course, 
you know, again, during the Cold War, that really was about striking a balance between the US and Russia. And while refraining from being a full on partner, a full on ally, still developing relationships with both those countries that benefit them. Now, India and the US have grown much closer over the recent years. And it's really particularly accentuated by the fact that India increasingly views China's um, military aggression over disputed territory with India and whatnot as sort of an increasing threat. And so as a result, we have seen these closer ties between India and the US. So Biden is now welcoming Modi and Modi very much wants to be a participant in that. But I think it's unlikely that we see any kind of explicit criticism uh, on Modi or India's part of Russia. And that's in part because it has these very close defense ties to Russia uh, and also has been purchasing crude oil from it. Yeah, we've heard from the oil minister in India saying his country intends to continue doing so. So we know, given the war in Ukraine, that the West has isolated Russia over that conflict, although Moscow has the support of Beijing. And I'm curious about the relationship between Presidents Putin and Xi and how Modi may view that? Well, that is a complicating factor. And much has been made of the so-called no-limits friendship between Vladimir Putin and President Xi Jinping. Um, I think we have started to see, however, the limits of that. I mean, China has been quite vocal about uh, the need for the conflict to avoid any kind of nuclear aspect. Um, And it, it does seem that China has become somewhat more public about not explicit criticism in any way of Moscow, but at least about the need to try and find some kind of peaceful resolution. China, of course, has put forward its own so-called sort of peace proposal or a blueprint, but that has been received by much skepticism, partly because of Xi Jinping's very cozy ties with Putin, uh, and also because it's ultimately an agreement that favors Moscow. Now, India doesn't support uh, the Western sanctions on Russia, and India continues to place orders for Russian-made military weapons. How is the U.S. going to navigate that territory? Do you have a sense of that? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Uh, My colleague Ian Marlowe had an excellent story um, citing U.S. senior U.S. defense officials really explaining how the U.S. is going to navigate this. On the one hand, we've sort of seen them staying quiet on issues uh, around human rights and, and civil rights and whatnot in India. But the expectation does seem that they're not going to be sort of too overtly critical um, because of how important it is for them to win over uh, India when it comes to kind of trying to contain or curb China's rise. So we we are going to expect to see the US sort of rolling out the red carpet for India and staying away somewhat from these tricky topics. It is worth stressing though too, like the reason why uh, India and Russia, that relationship persists from Modi's point of view is in part because of Chinese military aggression. So India, for example, relies on some of those defense supplies to actually push back against uh, Chinese military aggression on some of those disputed territories in the Himalayan border, for example. Well, speaking of rolling out the red carpet, um, while the prime minister is in the U.S., he will reportedly be meeting with the CEOs of 20 of the top American firms. Now, we know that since the pandemic, many of these global companies have been reevaluating their supply chains and their reliance on exposure to China. So, 
I guess you could call it diversifying away from China and towards India. Is that enough to entice Modi into changing some of his behavior or, or maybe not? I mean, we have certainly seen both China and the U.S. sort of try and rival one another to actually be India's top trading partner. So U.S. again sort of inching out now. And that, I think, is in part, as you say, because India is this very sort of attractive so-called third country, an alternative to China for companies that are seeking to diversify. Um, I, I think it is certainly to Modi's advantage. And we have seen that that sort of advantage rather than, let's say, values-based um, uh, motivations really drive a lot of his decision making when it comes to sort of uh, closer ties, forging closer ties with China uh, versus the US. Do you think that uh, for Beijing, the government is a little irritated that India has become this other destination point for manufacturing of uh, certain types of goods made by Western companies? I mean, perhaps to a certain extent, I think the bigger concern really for Beijing is this fear that India has the ability to tip that balance of power. And that as the U.S. tries to kind of form this more formal and closer allegiance of countries that are trying to contain China, particularly when it comes to strategic tech and whatnot, that India can play a pivotal role. And of course, this shift to the Indo-Pacific, again, in terms of sort of military strength, India again plays a, a sort of critical role there as well. So I think there is some concern, domestic concern for China, that it really does need to get its economy back up and running. And that does, of course, involve encouraging foreign companies in particular to stay in China, to continue expanding in China. So any threat to that, of course, is is somewhat sort of undermines that agenda. But I think the bigger issue is how the sort of geopolitics is shifting and where India ultimately comes out. And we've seen since about 2017, India has sort of more closely uh, to the U.S., when you look at the India-China relationship, they do share a disputed border of, of more than 2,000 miles. Can you help me understand how significant this is in just the overall relationship? Absolutely. It's a really critical part of why India views China as such a big threat. And China has tried to separate this issue away from, for example, its economic and trade issues with India. But India has maintained this is really a critical sticking point. And essentially, since 2020, China-India have been locked in their sort of deadliest uh, border conflict in about four decades. Both countries have had fatalities and both countries have tried to increasingly militarize the areas around that border, bringing in more soldiers, bringing in more artillery guns, fighter jets and so on. So that really is a big sticking point for Modi and Xi Jinping. Rebecca, thank you so much for helping us understand this uh, complicated relationship between the US and India as the US prepares for the state visit of Prime Minister Narendra Modi in the coming week. By the way, he's also been invited to address a joint meeting of Congress. Bloomberg's Rebecca Chung-Wilkins, she is our Asia government and politics correspondent. I'm Doug Krisner. You can join us weekdays here for Bloomberg Daybreak Asia, beginning at 6 a.m. in Hong Kong, 6 p.m. on Wall Street. Tom? Thank you, Doug. And you can hear host Doug Krisner and colleagues on Bloomberg Daybreak Asia Sunday through Thursday evenings, Wall Street time. And coming up here on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, we turn our attention back to the Fed because a key Senate committee has scheduled a nomination hearing for a number of Fed positions. I'm Tom Busby, and this is Bloomberg. The count. 
countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look ahead at the top stories for investors in the coming week. I'm Tom Busby in New York. A key Senate committee has scheduled a nomination hearing for a number of Federal Reserve positions. Talking about the Senate Committee on Banking, Housing and Urban Affairs. And for more, let's head to our Bloomberg 991 newsroom in Washington and Bloomberg Sound On co-host Kaylee Lines. Yeah, Tom, that's right. The Senate Banking Committee will hold a hearing this coming Wednesday to consider the nominations of Philip Jefferson, who's a current board member, to be promoted to vice chair, and Lisa Cook and Adriana Kugler to be Fed governors. Cook, of course, already became a governor last year, but filled a seat with a term that ends in January. So she's been renominated to serve another full 14-year term. So the question is, will they sail through this process, or could we see this get political? Joining me now is Kate Davidson, who leads our Fed coverage here in Washington. So, Kate, are we expecting these confirmations to be politically difficult at all? Obviously, we've seen this in the past. Everybody remembers what happened with Sarah Bloom Raskin, for example. But if Jefferson and Cook already are in the seats, does that make it easier? I mean, it's certainly that would be the expectation, right? So um, Phil Jefferson, he was confirmed, I think, ultimately 97 to 3, I think, was the vote. You know, it was it was very bipartisan. Um, and he's expected to get a lot of support. And you know, this is a promotion for him. He's in a he'll be in a bigger kind of more influential role. You know, the Fed vice chair is typically like the right hand man, right, of uh, or woman <laughs> of the Fed chair. Um, you know, he, ha- he plays a big role in getting out the, the message of the committee and sort of reinforcing or amplifying what chair. Jay Powell wants to communicate. I mean, typically, right? Lail Brainerd, who was in the job before, had a little bit, you know, different style. I mean, she right. you'd occasionally hear her sounded a different note on some things. But for the most part, that's um, you know, it's an it's an important job. So for sure, I think we can expect that he'll get some tough questions from um, members on both sides. And I would imagine that, you know, Senator Elizabeth Warren, for example, she's been very tough on Powell. I'm sure she's going to push Jefferson to commit to, you know, backing off of the rate hiking campaign, which which of course he won't do. I think he'll probably just say what we've heard other Fed officials say, which is that they're data dependent and it depends on how the economy evolves. So um, I think that ultimately he'll probably be fine. Lisa Cook, it's a, a little bit less certain. She faced a difficult uh, difficult confirmation. There was a lot of pushback from Republicans who had a lot of different arguments that, you know, frankly, some folks said were, were kind of unfair uh, and, and were, um, you know, not not arguments that some of her colleagues uh, or other people who were nominated at the time were facing. But, you know, things like she she didn't have, uh, you know, the proper experience. She wasn't qualified. I mean, obviously, she she got widespread support from the economic community. So, she eventually did get through. We haven't heard that same kind of chatter this time around. Mm-hmm. You know, she's on the board now. She made it through. So I think we can expect that she'll be fine. You know, Democrats still control the Senate, so there are more of them. Um, I don't think it will be a problem. But again, you could, you know, there, there could be, um, I wouldn't say fireworks, but definitely some, you know, perhaps a tough line of questioning of her and the decisions she's made since she's been on the board, things that she's said. Mm-hmm. She's 
kept a pretty low profile, so that could also help her. Um, but then we do have a third third nominee, Adriana Kugler, um, yeah. who was who was new. So that's sort of the big question mark, I think. And finally, if all of them were to be confirmed, how could Fed policy look different under them? So I don't think it will look too different because, as we as we've been saying, you know, two of them are already on the board, um, but that third, you know, that third official, um, Kugler. I mean, she, she's being nominated by the uh, by the Biden administration by President Biden. So it's fair to expect that probably her views will align with, um, you know, what what he would like to see. The White House is always pretty careful to not weigh in directly on what the Fed is doing, but I think they recognize inflation is still too high; it needs to be brought out under control. But also, you don't want to do too much to under cut the labor market. So I would expect that she would hew pretty closely to that that message and what we're hearing from from other Fed officials who um, you know were nominated by this administration and are currently on the board. All right, Kate Davidson, who leads our Fed coverage here at Bloomberg, thank you so much. And Tom, we'll look forward to Wednesday. Thank you, Kaylee. That was Bloomberg Sound on co-host Kaylee Lines reporting from our Bloomberg 991 newsroom in Washington. And you can hear Sound on weekdays 1 to 3 p.m. on Bloomberg Radio. And that does it for this edition of Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend. Join us again Monday morning at 5 a.m. Wall Street time for the latest on the markets overseas and the news you need to start your day. I'm Tom Busby. Stay with us. Top stories and global business headlines are coming up right now. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.